I recently had a conversation with a young man who was involved with campus ministry, and he's doing some really good work. And one of the parts of his ministry is to engage with college students and ask them where they're at with Jesus, to invite them to a Bible study, uh, to help them find out how they can have a relationship with Christ. He shares the gospel with these students. And as we talked, he was telling me some of the stories of these college kids coming back to the Lord, that he would share the gospel with them. They would do these Bible studies, and some of them had grown up in church, but because of their uh, kind of early part of their college experience, they drifted away from the Lord. Some of us have been there, but yet they got into that Bible study. They recommitted their life to Jesus Christ. He was sharing stories of some of these college students that he would approach and share the gospel with and, and again, do these Bible studies. And as they would work through, you know, maybe the gospel of Mark or whatever it was, these college students that knew nothing about Jesus, some just maybe just a little bit about who Jesus was, the Lord would transform their hearts and they would accept Christ as their Lord and Savior. Just some really great things happening on these college campuses. But I asked him, I said, how tough is what you're doing? I said, what type of opposition do you face as you go to these college campuses and share the good news about Jesus Christ? And he said, it's hard. He says, we, we sometimes face opposition at times. And he said, yes, it's, it can be a challenge. But he quickly deflected the challenge and the opposition that he faced. And he said, there's another college And he has some friends that work in this college with this ministry. And he says, it can be really tough for them, really difficult. He said, those that share the gospel on this college campus face rejection. They're mocked. They're extremely disliked. He shared this story that some of these, they call them evangelists, that go up to people and share the gospel, that they will have their picture taken. They don't know this. And then as they go into the college door, they they see their own face. But things have been thrown at it darts or whatever it may be, their face is used as target practice because these that are sharing the gospel are so disliked on this campus. This is in the United States, okay? Now imagine you share the gospel with somebody at work and they didn't like it and you went into the break room to get coffee and there's your face on the wall and people have thrown things at it. Now I don't think many of us, probably none of us have had something like that happen, but the reality is this. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you are living out your faith, if you are willing to be publicly identified as a follower of Jesus, you're going to face opposition. There's going to be hostility at times in your life. And it's not that we seek this out. It's not that we have some martyr complex that everybody is opposed to us. But yet at times we will face opposition for our faith. It will happen. And it may be that right now you're facing opposition for your Christian faith. Maybe you're facing this at work or with your family. You're trying to be obedient to what Christ commands and by your actions at work, because you're different, they're ridiculing you at work. You seek to stand firm in your Christian beliefs and some of your friends are not responding as friends should. They are, they are making fun of you. They, they just don't get you. Maybe you've shared the gospel with a coworker or with a, a neighbor. Maybe you've invited them to church and they've not received it well. And so this can be hard. It's not always a pleasant thing to be a follower of Jesus, of living out our faith before others. It can be hard. So how do we handle this? 
What do we need to understand when our commitment to follow Jesus is tested in this way where we meet opposition for our faith? And to help guide us in this, we come to Daniel chapter 3, where we find three of Daniel's friends. Now, we've been introduced to them in chapters 1 and chapters 2. Their Hebrew names are Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but they are probably more well-known by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, as a quick review, a little background of the book of Daniel. Daniel and these three friends had grown up in the city of Jerusalem, but King Nebuchadnezzar had come and destroyed the city, and he took a number of the people away. They were part of this initial group. And Daniel and his three friends were put into this three-year intensive program. And they were learning the ways of Babylon. And the, the purpose of this intensive program is that they would work for the government of Babylon. And so far, even though they are foreigners and exiles, things have worked out really well for them. They've been promoted to very high positions in the empire of Babylon. They've been given great responsibility to manage the province of Babylon. That's a little bit of the backstory as we get to chapter 3. Now, in our time together, as we look at chapter 3, I want to break it up into three sections. And the first will be the image. We'll see this image of gold. And then the furnace. And then the deliverance. Well, let's begin with the image. Look with me, if you will, at Daniel chapter 3, verse 1. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. Verse 3, So the satraps, the prefects, the governors, advisors, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you are commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as everyone heard the music, all the nations and all the peoples of every language fell down and worshiped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Now, what we discovered in Daniel chapter 2 is that Nebuchadnezzar had this dream, and it was really troubling him. And Daniel, through God's help, had interpreted this dream. Now, as a bit of a review, this dream that Nebuchadnezzar had was this image of a man. At the very top of this image, it was this head of gold. And as we move down to the chest and arms, they were made of silver. And then when we get to the stomach and the thighs, they were of, of bronze. And then lastly, when we get to the legs, they were of iron. And then the feet were partly iron and partly clay. And Daniel reveals that in this dream that Babylon is this head of gold. And that King Nebuchadnezzar, that God has given him great authority. But Daniel also mentioned, he was very clear in this, that after Nebuchadnezzar came, another empire would rise up. But then he, to make it even more clear, Daniel says the main point of this dream, Nebuchadnezzar, is not these earthly kingdoms. It's not your kingdom. It's that God's kingdom will last forever. And at the end of chapter 2, as Daniel reveals this dream, Nebuchadnezzar, this is really kind of shocking, he praises God. 
But when we get to chapter 3, all that seems to have faded away for Nebuchadnezzar. And instead of the king focus being on God, he turns the focus back to himself and to his empire of Babylon. And he creates the statue of gold. And this statue of gold was most likely made of wood. It would have been overlaid with gold. And it was 90 feet tall. It was six feet or nine feet wide. And he puts this golden statue in this plane. And so here's the picture, this, this statue, 90 feet tall, nine feet wide. It's on this plane, so very flat. So it would have looked even larger. And when the music is played, all the peoples are to fall down and worship the image. Now, this is simple enough to, to see what's going on here. Large statue, music plays, fall down and worship. But what's the deal with this statue, this image of gold? I mean, what is going on here? Why does Nebuchadnezzar do this? Because we can hear this and think this is an ancient culture, kind of primitive in some of their ways, some of the things they did, such as bowing down to this image. How does this apply to us today, to, to modern people? What this image of gold represents is a combination of the following. It's the king, so King Nebuchadnezzar. It's the gods of Babylon, all the different gods. And it's the Babylonian culture. What Nebuchadnezzar is doing is trying to create a national identity. Now, why would he do this? It's to bring total allegiance to the nation. King Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 2 was just told his kingdom would not last forever. So he's trying to push against that. If there can be total allegiance to Babylon, if there can be a common worship, there's, again, this total allegiance to the nation by the way they worship, there will be peace and his kingdom won't fall away. Now, here's why Nebuchadnezzar thinks he can do this. First of all, he has a massive ego, all right? Let's not miss that. But also, it's because Babylon is a pluralistic society, and pluralistic cultures are okay to have many beliefs and many gods as long as it's secondary to the nation's beliefs and gods. Or to put it another way, an individual can have their own faith as long as it's secondary to the public faith that unites a nation. Now, do you see the similarities to our pluralistic society? This is one of the reasons there is so much going on with all these different cultural wars that we're in. There is a battle to see which views will win out, what will become the cultural norm to become the national identity. And so it could be issues such as sexuality or gender or whatever new issue may come up. And so as Christians, or really any faith for that matter, in a pluralistic society, you can believe what you want, but you need to keep it private. You can worship how you like as long as it's secondary to the public faith. You can worship any way that you want as long as it doesn't disrupt the cultural norms. And did you notice when we are reading in verses 1 to 7, in verse 2 and 3, it lists all these different groups, the satraps, the governors, the magistrates. And then you get to verse 3 and it does it again. It's, it's kind of annoying when you read it, when you hear it. Now, why does the author who is most likely Daniel do this? It's that he's trying to show us. It's a liter literary device. He's trying to show us that anyone who is anyone was here. The most important, the influential, they all go to this image and they bow down. And so what we find with this group in verses two and three is that they are the builders of culture. They are the influencers of culture. 
to put it in our context, they're the politicians, the CEOs, the media, our entertainers, those that are successful. And by all these groups, because of their power and their influence coming together, bowing down to this image, it puts tremendous pressure for all the peoples, all the peoples from all these different nations that are under Babylon to bow down. And by the way, if you don't bow down, there will be a tremendous cost to you as you'll be thrown into the fiery furnace. Do you see how relevant this is to our situation today? The pressure and the cost of not bowing down to the nation's faith, to not bowing to the cultural norms that have been established. And it says in verse 7, all the peoples, all the peoples fell down to worship the image. All the people that is except Daniel, his three friends. Look with me at verse 8 as we move to part 2 of the story, the, the furnace. Look at verse 8. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever. Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, the pipe, all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image. And that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into the blazing furnace. Verse 12. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Verse 15, Now when you hear the sound of the horn and all the different kinds of music, you are to be ready to fall down and worship the image I made. If you do this, very good. But if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into the blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from you, your, uh, your majesty's hand. Verse 18. But even if he does not, we want you to know, I love this, your majesty, we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Now, quick note, where is Daniel in all this? It's a common question that comes up in this passage. Now, there's different theories about where Daniel may be, but I don't think he had a lapse in faith. Throughout the book of Daniel, Daniel is this model of staying committed in his faith. So I don't think he had a lapse of faith. I think it's as simple as this. He wasn't at the ceremony. Daniel had risen to a very high position in the Babylonian government, even higher than his three friends. And so, so I think he was just on assignment somewhere else. Now, that's my view. You can look into it more if you'd like. Now, back to Daniel's three friends. Think of the pressure they are under. Everyone that was present for this ceremony bowed down to the image. I mean, think about that. Every single person. There were no doubt thousands of people. And when the music plays, they all fall down and bow, except three guys just standing there. Now, that's some peer pressure. And just think how easy it would have been to, to rationalize just going ahead to, to bow down. Think of the reasons that they could have given. 
everyone was doing it. Let's just go with the crowd. We don't want to seem so fanatical. They could have rationalized, this isn't really that big of a deal. We know the one true living God, and so we're going to bow down here, but we don't really mean it. They might have reasoned, you know, we're being a really good influence for God in our jobs. And if we're dead, that's over. Surely God would want us to give on this issue so we can continue to be this positive influence and be used by him. So there is a lot of pressure, and they have many reasons to rationalize bowing down to this image like everybody else, but they don't bow down. It's impressive. It really is. And because they don't bow to this image, they face opposition for their faith. There was a price they would pay. Now, as we read this story and the the opposition to their faith that they were facing, I think we have to ask ourselves, do we ever face opposition for our faith? Because it's clear in the New Testament that as followers of Jesus, there will at times be opposition. There will be hostility for living out our faith. If you identify as a believer, publicly identify as a believer at work, in your neighborhood, at times you will be opposed. And it's not that we go looking for this. I mean, uh, Daniel's three friends here, they weren't looking for this. They weren't seeking it out. They didn't have something to prove, but it came their way. And when they stayed committed to God, the opposition came to them. And so not necessarily, again, all the time, but there will be times as we live out our faith, we will face this opposition. Now, if we don't, we have to ask, why don't we ever face opposition? Is, that we, is it that we are too easy to, to just go with the flow? That we don't want any discomfort, whatever that may be, financial Maybe at our job, we don't get the promotion. Is it that we're fearful of being found out and what that could mean? Are we just being disobedient to to fit in? Do we too quickly rationalize and just say, you know what, it's okay if I bow down on this particular issue. But though these young guys are, are dealing with this immense opposition for their faith and are faced with this threat of being thrown into this fiery furnace, they have that great reply in verses 17 and 18. They say to the king, we know that God is able to deliver us from that blazing furnace, but even if he doesn't, we want you to know, king, we will not bow down. I mean, what a statement. And I think all of us can get behind the first part of their statement and say, yes, I believe that God is able to deliver us. But do we submit to the second part of their statement? Because what Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are saying to the king is that they will stay committed to God no matter what, and they will leave the outcome to God, whatever that outcome may be. They are proclaiming that our God is able to deliver us, but even if he doesn't deliver us in the way that we want, we will still trust him. We will give that outcome to him. That's the position they take when faced with opposition for their faith. And that is the position that we must take as well. We stay committed. When we face that opposition, we stay committed and we leave the outcome to the Lord. As we move to part three, which is the deliverance, let's look at verses 19, and we're going to go down all the way to verse 28, verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And his attitude toward them changed, and he ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. 
He commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men wearing their robes and trousers and turbans and other clothes were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The the king's command was so urgent and the, the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men's firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed. And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Verse 26, Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, the prefects, the governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. These young guys, they stand firm. They're thrown into this blazing fire and it's so hot, the guards that had taken them and bound them and threw them into the fire, they are killed. That's hot. And Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they should have been immediately incinerated by this fire. But as Nebuchadnezzar is watching, he notices this fourth person, which immediately raises the question, who is this? And some scholars, they believe it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus, meaning Jesus showing up in the Old Testament. Others think it was just an angel of the Lord. But regardless, with the appearance of this fourth person in the fiery furnace, It's an indication of God's presence. And what we are to take from this is that when we face the trials of life, and these trials could be due to opposition for our faith or trials of another variety, whatever the trial is, we need to understand this, that God is present with us in that. And he may deliver us from experiencing trouble and adversity, but so often he doesn't. What he does instead is he walks with us through that fire. And so he may not deliver us from it in the way that we want, but he is with us. God doesn't always save us from the fire, but he is with us in the fire. And he will see that we go through it, that we are delivered from it. But I also want us to think about this. In the midst of our trials, we need to understand this. Was God's presence with these young men when they didn't bow down? Was God's presence with them when they stood before the king and would not give in? And we would say, yes, of course. But when did they experience this deeper realization of God's presence? It was in the fire. And in our life, when we go through that testing, and it's so hard, we just want it to be over. It's in those moments where we have this deeper realization of God. I've talked to people that have gone through extremely difficult times. They were committed to God, but it was in that difficulty when they grew closer to the Lord, where they felt his comfort in ways they had never felt it before, 
where they felt his grace and his presence in ways they had never experienced before. And so be encouraged by this. When you go through your own trials, and again, it may be any trial, just the variety that we face in life, financial, relationship, it may be the trial facing opposition for your faith. But in those hard times, know that God's presence is with you and that through that, you will have a deeper realization of God in your life. So as we conclude, I want to say this. Being a follower of Jesus is hard at times. We are called to, to carry our cross. There will be opposition for our faith. But be encouraged that in the midst of that, God is present with you. He will deliver you through that. And in that trial, you will experience God in new and fresh ways. Your faith will be strengthened. So stand firm. Don't give in. The Lord will be with you. He is faithful in that. In Isaiah 41, we read this. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. When your commitment to God is tested, when you face that opposition, know that he will strengthen you. Know that he will uphold you. He will deliver you. Lord, we thank you for this story. Lord, at times in our faith, Lord, it just seems that we can be so beaten down. Lord, we want to be like Daniel. Lord, we want to be like his friends, but we give in too easy. Lord, we are fearful, Lord, at times to, to live out our faith. And Lord, I ask that we will have the courage, Lord, to be identified as believers. Lord, that in our workplaces, we'll let people know that we're followers of Jesus. When they're going through struggles, we'll bring it up. We'll, we'll say, Lord, we will pray for them. Lord, because of the hope that we have in Jesus Christ, Lord, we, we want to be identified so that we can share that. Lord, give us that courage. Lord, help us not to fear because we so easily want to fear. And Lord, help us to know that you strengthen us. Lord, you uphold us. Lord, we thank you for the example of these young men. Lord, help it to be one that we look to. And Lord, we may face opposition this week. Lord, it may be opposition in six months. But Lord, help us to take, Lord, what we've heard today. Lord, put it in our heart. Lord, anchor it in our soul to stand firm for you. Lord, to do so with grace and love. Lord, we are not opposed to others. Lord, we are to love them. But Lord, help us in that opposition, Lord, to stand firm. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ. And we ask everything in his name. Amen.